Everybody, bring it in. We are back here on the read option. Uh, before we get into today's show, I just want to apologize. We had a show recorded, Masters Preview, uh, MLB Recap stuff. It was Scotty and I. It was a great show and uh, had some technical difficulties, and it did not get published in time for the Masters this weekend. So all in all, Kind of disappointed. Uh, it's the second time we promised you a second show in a week and it just didn't come out. So uh, first apology goes to there. Second apology is that this pod was also supposed to go out and be done earlier in the week. Unfortunately, life gets in the way of that sometimes. Uh, some major car troubles yesterday and your boy is now looking for a new car. Uh, and, you know, I'll be honest, though, got to give a huge shout out to Enterprise because got the free upgrade let me drive around in a 2020 Jeep Wrangler, which is by far the nicest car I've ever gotten to drive. Thing is beautiful. So shout out to them and uh, Enterprise. If you ever want to sponsor the pod, please, please feel free. I'll, I'll take as many of them Jeep Wranglers as you want to let me rent. But uh, just again, apologies for the late, you know, release here. But look, we got it. We got a great show today. Flying solo, hoping to have the boys back as we're getting closer and closer to the NFL draft. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit NFL draft today. We got a huge NBA matchup tonight between the Sixers and the Nets. Potential Eastern Conference Finals preview. Not 100% sure. And then, of course, tomorrow, April 15th, is Jackie Robinson Day. And with everything that's going on in our country and in the world right now, uh, I think it's going to mean a little bit extra. And I just have some thoughts. I'm going to wrap up the show with that as well. But the first thing I have to get into here is the Masters. The Masters was this past weekend. Uh, was not necessarily the most dramatic or the most insane or incredible Masters we've ever had. But, you know, two years ago, we had Tiger Woods winning when nobody thought Tiger would win in 2019. Even back five months ago in November, Dustin Johnson absolutely destroying the field. Uh, One of the most incredible rounds we've ever ever seen somebody play there. And so we were kind of due, right? We were kind of due for a more boring, a little more vanilla overall Masters. But I watched every single day. It was the majority of my day for four straight days. It is always one of my favorite sporting events. And part of the reason I'm bummed is because Scotty and I went through a a whole bunch of golf stuff. And I did a ton of research and read a bunch of articles and listened to like six podcasts. And like, I was so locked in and so much of what I said on that pod that was supposed to come out on Thursday turned out to be true. You know, like uh, that first day, that Thursday, having just the most insanely difficult greens and everything was hard and fast. That's what she said. But you know, it was, it was a wild first day. And so there will be moments as I go through here where I'll be like, you know, I did say that, but none of you will believe me because you didn't hear it. And that's on me. That is on me. So uh, you can just pretend, or you can say I'm full of shit either way. I swear to you, uh, I was locked in for this Masters because it is one of my favorite sporting events every single year. There's just, there's something about it, right? Augusta is an objectively magical and and beautiful place. It, it's, you know, people have described it as like an oasis, you know, in the middle of the desert, it can be no rain, no, no water. 
the insanely hot temperatures it's just miserable and then you see just a little oasis just chilling out there in the desert and you go and it's like oh my god where there's a waterfall and here are these trees and grass everywhere like that is how augusta is played you know there are stories of people playing there's another golf course at augusta it's right next door so there's augusta national which is where the the masters is played and where the augusta national women's amateurs played but there's also a smaller like sister course i guess you'd call it right next door and there it's all fenced in it's heavily guarded as it should be right augusta is augusta for a reason and people have said you know it can be raining like crazy and mudslides on augusta golf club or whatever they call the other one and you can peek over the fence and look into augusta national and it will look like the most pristine and perfect golf course you've ever seen in your life and it might just be like 50 yards away so there is something magical about that place. You know, I love it as the patrons, they call it, instead of fans. You know, you're not allowed to have cell phones. All the food is crazy cheap there. We did a segment on the radio show just uh, on Sunday. We call it Eat Your Feelings, where, you know, you pick usually a restaurant from someone in college sports who's had a bad weekend, and you spend $100 as if you're just going to pig out after a really, really rough week. And what we did, Eat Your Feelings, but at Augusta National. And it was so hard to come up with enough options to, you know, just eat $100 worth of food at Augusta National that we had to add the Hooters that's across the street from Augusta National uh, as the way to make sure we could actually get to the full $100. But everything about that place is special. It's a very special tournament for me. It's one of my all-time favorite sporting events every single year. So even if it wasn't the most dramatic or insane or incredible you know, tournament that we've ever had. It, it was still so great to have it back in the spring. And the champion, Hideki Matsuyama, what an incredible story. I mean, people don't realize, and this has been kind of talked to death over the last few days as people have reacted to this past weekend's Masters, but Japan is so golf crazy, right? Like for us, golf is like one of the ancillary sports, right? You have some people like myself and others who are, who love the sport, who watch it every, try to watch it every weekend during the season. You know, it, it's always something that kind of keep an eye on. They're always locked in for the majors and the other big side events like the Ryder cup uh, and, and the players championship, right? These kind of pseudo major type events, but for most average sports fans, it's like, Oh, that's, that's the sport I get to nap during. That's when I wake up on Sunday after going hard on Saturday night and I can flip on golf and there's some birds chirping and some nice scenery and some British guys talking in very melatone, you know, monotone, very quiet, and very peaceful voices, not going to upset anybody, you know, and it's, it's nap. It's the perfect nap situation for you, right? You, you lay down on the couch, you have a cup of coffee on the side and you, you pass out, right? But in Japan, it is like one of, if not the biggest sport that they have over there. They're huge in baseball, right? Uh, obviously, the cliche stuff like sumo wrestling is very popular over there. But golf is, is as a world sport, is so big over there. There's some incredible numbers about the percentage of people in Japan who play golf. I think it's over like half of the population is like a, a regular golfer of some kind. And for them, they've had pretty good players over the last 20 to 30 years who have gotten close, who've had top five finishes. Hideki Matsuyama, he finished in the top six at every single major going into this weekend. 
So for him to be the guy who broke through, had an absolutely remarkable tournament, especially from that like rain delay on, uh, he was just, he was lights out. And what that means for Japan in the same week that Tsubasa Kachitani won the Augusta National Women's Amateur. It's a weird, it, they don't call it a tournament, but it's the Augusta National Women's Amateur, which is the week before. She's also Japanese. So you had back-to-back within 10 days of each other, you had, not even 10 days, seven days of each other. You had two Japanese citizens win at Augusta National. And I can't even begin to imagine what that's what this week has been like for Hideki Matsuyama. You know, the there's a great picture of him, you know, kind of with the green jacket draped over on him on the plane ride back to Japan. You know, he's going to be a king there. There's some people said like Andy North and Scott Van Pelt has said this, you know, this could be a nine figure a year type of win for him because it just automatically propels him into this new category of superstar in Japan. And for a guy who by all accounts is incredibly humble, you know, a lot of people like him. He's, he's very kind of fun. Uh, if you get to know him, but to the audience, you know, we don't really know a whole lot about him. You know, we know that he loves Saki. He's got, he's a really big Saki guy. So he likes to have a good time. We know that at least, but I thought just the, the entirety of what this means for their culture, for that country, for that fan base, and for him to have the pressure of an entire country on his shoulders going into that day, and he shanks that first tee shot on one, I, I just, for him to rebound the way that he did was, was really, really remarkable. And honestly, like, he dominated. He, you know, there was that little slip up on the back. He, he went to the water on 15, which 15 was a beast this week. I, I, the fact that people actually birdied that hole successfully is, is pretty remarkable. But skipping it off the green, rolling down the hill, getting into the water on 15, to then come back at 16, hit a gem, and then Shoffley, you know, he choked a bit, you know? He was going after a shot. He didn't hit it clean. I, I, I Maybe choke's not the right word because he himself said, I don't know, I don't think it was a choke job. He's like, I just didn't hit a good shot. And I think Shoffley's got a bunch of, you know, majors in his future. He's a really good player. But the second that shot went in into the water on 16, it was like, all right, this, I mean, this is over. You know, you can't, can't triple bogey on 16 when you're within one and expect to actually have a shot. Um, But the thing that about Matsuyama's game that was so impressive this whole week, and it's kind of a trend that you'll see at the masters is he led the entire field in scrambling, which for people who aren't big golf fans, scrambling is essentially you hit a bad tee shot. How do you recover from there? You know, how many times do you shank one into the woods, but still save par? or hit one into the water and save par or save bogey as opposed to double bogey or triple bogey. So to be able to scramble at an elite level is something you kind of need. Cause think about some of the most incredible shots that are burned into our memory from Augusta, right? You know, tiger on 16, the chip in, right? He hit that off the tee and it didn't it, off the green, right? So that is a form of scrambling when you're talking about a par three bubble Watson's massive hook out of the pine straw, Bending it around trees. Jordan Spieth in 2015 had one. So being able to scramble effectively is huge. And for me, for Hideki, the one that sticks out was on that first hole. He hit that ball well into the woods. He got a pretty good bounce. And people thought, you know, based off of what his second shot was looking at on one, he could either go straight left and kick it out into the fairway, 
and then try to be aggressive with his third shot and try to go for a far up and down. Then he had a couple other options that were in between, or there was one window that he could try to get it through. And he didn't hit it super clean, but he got it out and onto the fairway to about 100 yards from the hole. And if you can do that, that up and down from 100 is far easier than doing it from 185, 200, which is what he would have done if he had just gone kind of straight left and back onto the fairway. So everything about his game this week was set up perfectly for Augusta. He won the thing start to finish. And at the end of the day, he was, he was the best player in the field. He earned that green jacket. Um, but again, for as, as for the tournament altogether from more of a golf spot, you know, again, it wasn't the most memorable one that we've had. Uh, a lot of big names didn't even make the cut, you know, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka. But that first day was so hard. And the rain on Saturday really made a difference. And that's when Hideki came out and went on that super crazy streak to wrap up the day on, on Saturday. But, you know, uh, start to finish, the, the course played really, really, really well this week. Um, you know, if, if you're one of those people that likes to root for the course or root against the course, the course had a hell of a showing. Continuing on here, just again, some of the other people, 15th, I said, was absolutely brutal. But what was kind of cool is with a lot of the big boys out, you know, your Kepkas and your DJs uh, and, and even other guys like, you know, my, my guy, Bryson DeChambeau. God, I loved watching him fail. It was it was so good. It felt so good watching DeChambeau just spray it all over the place this weekend. And, you know, the thing about DeChambeau, too, is his game is not is not set up for Augusta. You know, one of the things I had said going into that pod on Thursday that has now become a storyline after the fact is the green book, right? The little green book you get with all the yardage and stuff. You have to walk the course on Wednesday before you play and fill out your yardage marks. They don't give that to you. So for Bryson, who lives and dies by those, those little green books, he just didn't know how to fill it out the right way, didn't know how to play it the right way. And so he can hit the ball a mile. We can all gasp at how fast he swings the club. Unless that dude makes some serious changes and, and drops the ego down a little bit, he's never going to win Augusta. It just does not suit his game. It's all about your second shot. It's not about your first shot. You know, Phil Mickelson almost finished one under. Meanwhile, DeChambeau finishes at like plus five. And there's a reason for that. Because, yeah, there's a couple holes that you can eagle. But, you know, like perfect example is the 13th. 13th after amen corner is that big swooping dog leg left. And you got to hit the ball. You don't even have to hit the ball that big. Most people try to draw it, right? Unless you're left, you're going to try to slice it. But that's not a super difficult hole to eagle. You just got to hit one good shot off the tee, and it doesn't have to go a mile. That was the most eagled hole in the entire course this week. And so, yeah, DeChambeau, like, you're set up great to get within 110 yards on that hole. But if everyone else in the tournament can eagle it too, then what good what kind of an advantage is that for you that you can hit another 20 yards further than people? Augusta isn't won by overpowering it. Even when Tiger was at his best, and was hitting the ball way further than everybody else. Does it help? Sure. But it's not going to be the defining factor that wins you a tournament. And we saw it again with Bryson. You know, it's why his par 68 comment that he had in back in November is such horseshit. And it's all just an ego thing with him. And frankly, the dude needs to get his shit together because for as talented as he is, he really, really disappoints when it comes to Augusta. And it's all in his head. It's all a Bryson thing. It's He needs to fix that. He needs to approach it differently. And a perfect example of that 
is Will Zalatoris, who became kind of like the heartthrob, the feel-good story of this whole Masters run, right? Kid's first time ever playing at Augusta. He doesn't even have his PGA Tour card yet. He finished sixth at the U.S. Open over the summer and now has finished second at the Masters. And he doesn't have his PGA Tour card yet. Now, because of how well he's played, he will get it for twenty uh, the next loop, and he'll be invited to all of the uh, major championships this year. But he doesn't technically have his PGA Tour card, which is crazy. Zalatoris looks like he weighs about 160 pounds soaking wet, right? Bryson has like literally about 100 pounds on the kid. And yet they both approach golf in the exact same way, right? Zalatoris is very much like Bryson about like understanding a lot of the physics side of it, uh, understanding how to strategize based off of his yardage books and using the, the, the green like, and using angles in the green, like all that really super intense, like high level thinking shit. Zalatoris is the same way, but Zalatoris is all about his ball striking. It's all about his second shots. And that's why he knew how to play Augusta, which is crazy. Cause this was the first time he played Augusta. And they say that the only thing that helps you get better is by experience because you don't have those books. You don't have it all laid out in front of you where you can do these math equations and these problems <clears throat> and come away with a legitimate answer. But Zalatoris is like masters obsessed, right? There are stories of him being at like fancy Italian restaurants and asking, you know, finding a TV just so he can watch a replay of the Masters from the weekend before. You know, he is that obsessed with the Masters. This was his dream. And so he knew how to play Augusta coming into Augusta, which is crazy. There's a couple examples. Uh, I forget which hole it is. It's going to kill me. I think it was number six. Uh, no, six is a part three. I think it was seven then. There's a massive bump. And the, the whole placement on that hole on Sunday at Augusta is one of the most dangerous that you'll see in golf. It's literally think of like a crown, right? Or like a dome in the middle of the green and they place it right on the back half of the dome. So if you land it on the front, it will kick out on either direct, any direction and will shoot out anywhere. If you go behind it, there's a shelf off to the back. So you have a incredibly small landing space for there. And he knew where to put it on Sunday at Augusta. The first time he played it at that whole location. That is some serious, serious prep work. And so if, if Bryson approached it more like Zalatoris, which is like, hey, yeah, Zalatoris can bomb it, you know, 315, but it's his second shots. It's the way he understands Augusta specifically that despite the fact that the two of them have very similar mindsets when it comes to the game of golf, Zalatoris was far more successful in his first time playing it than Bryson was now, and I think his seventh just kind of goes to show you that like approach in golf and the mental side of golf is so important. And what you emphasize, depending on the course specifically will matter. But again, loves Zalatoris. I think he's going to be around for a while. And I, yeah, I just don't know what to say. I mean, everyone freaked out because he looked like the kid, the caddy or the, the young kid from happy Gilmore, which he does. Adam Sandler even gave him a shout out, which had to be fun, but he was smart. I mean, he said like he did not touch his phone the entire four days. Did not have his phone for four straight days. God bless him. And you know what? Had he had it and saw the amount of support and the way that people were talking about him, I don't know, man. I, I think he would have – I think he might have might have crumbled a little more under the pressure. But that being said, amazing, amazing round from him.
we saw what happened with Shoffley hitting into the water on 16. It was devastating for the guy, especially because it really felt like, man, we're going to have a finish here. And then, like, poof, in one shot, you saw you saw that ball going wide. And you don't see a lot of guys get in the water at Augusta on 16. Like, that hole in particular is one of those where it's like guys know how to play. And he took an aggressive line, but he's a natural fader. And he had to hit a little bit of a draw on that to try to swoop it into where the, it kind of bowls down into that hole placement, the classic hole placement of 16 on Sunday at Augusta. And he just came up a little short. It wasn't a supernatural shot. But, you know, look, Shoffley, like I said earlier, Shoffley is going to win a major at some point, if not multiple majors. He's just – he's too good, and he has this reputation of kind of being a choke artist. But, you know, we said the same thing about Sergio for years, and then Sergio hauls off and wins the freaking Masters just in, what, 2017. So while we have these ideas in our head about these guys being choke artists, I mean, even Jordan Spieth. We saw Jordan Spieth with a massive comeback this week, which is great. Like, we – Golf is better when Jordan Spieth is better. And I think Shoffley has the potential to kind of be in that same breath, you know, and he's been there at the top in the final group of majors, I think three or four different times already in his career. So I like Shoffley. I felt bad for him. I hope he has another really great bounce back. Uh, the other, the last guy, I guess, the, the last two things I want to say about the Masters before we move on to the NFL draft stuff. Justin Rose played an unbelievable Masters. And there's going to be a lot of people, and there have been a lot of people, criticizing him because of how he finished after having a massive lead, you know, after the first couple days. Got to understand this, man. This guy has not played competitive golf in months. He's been rehabbing a back injury, and he's in his 40s, so it's not like he's some young kid, right? He's been around for a long time. And I used to really dislike Justin Rose. Like every time he was in contention, I don't know what it is. It's just for some reason I didn't. I used to call him. I was like, he looks like the perfect James Bond villain. You know, you can just see him sitting there petting a cat with you know a freaking glass of whiskey or glass of red wine or something, like waiting for Mister Bond to come in. Right? Like he just has that look to him. But he's like one of the most universally liked guys on the tour. He does a lot of commercials, so maybe that's part of the reason why people don't like him. He does a lot of like bank commercials and like investment commercials. So there's a little bit of this, you know, elitist feel to him, I guess. But I mean, that it's golf. I mean, you kind of feel like everybody in golf has that kind of vibe. I, I don't know. I've really grown to like him, especially over the last couple of years. I was actually pulling for him hard out of that final group. Um, but, you know, he was 100 to 1 going into this because nobody had any idea as to how well or not well he'd play because we just haven't seen him do it. So for him to have that showing, especially on Thursday, the most impressive thing we saw all week was his round on Thursday when everybody, when there's like only 10 guys who were under par in the entire field, and yet Justin Rose is sitting there at like 7 under. And he shot a 65 at Augusta in some of the hardest you know conditions we've seen in years, like even guys like Sergio have been playing there for 10, 15 years said, I don't know if I've ever seen the course as hard as it is, as it was on that Thursday. Uh, someone compared it to, you know, I feel like I just got out of the ring after fighting a Vander Holyfield for 10 rounds. It, it took something out of these guys and just all the credit in the world to Justin Rose. He's won a major before. I would have loved to have seen him get a green jacket, but you know, I guess the clock's kind of ticking on him. You never know with some of these guys. But being able to string together four straight days, especially at a place like Augusta, is really, really hard. But, you know, maybe there's an Open Championship. Maybe there's a PGA Championship in his future there. I mean, he's only, what, two years removed from winning the FedEx Cup. Uh, 
So we'll, we'll see. I, again, I, I was pulling for Justin Rose and, and I hope, I hope he does. And ironically, this is a good segue into the last thing I was going to say, because the year that Justin Rose won the FedEx cup in terms of points was also when Tiger won was at, literally at the same to- tournament that Tiger won his first tournament back and it had been years. And I, it was the last event of the year. It was actually in uh, the Philadelphia area. And it was that scene where it's him and Rory walking up at 18 and there's like thousands of people following them. There really was a, a special feeling that went on that day. And that's what Tiger brings. Tiger brings a certain energy, a certain passion out of people. He makes people crazy. It, it's really a, a bizarre kind of spectacle to see. And I'll never forget that drone shot or maybe it was a blimp shot of that day of Tiger walking up 18 on, on whatever that course was. And there just being like 2000 people all just following him and them having to have security guards and police pe- and like everybody holding him back and Tiger and Rory are just laughing with each other because they're good buddies. And they're just laughing with each other, walking up like, I don't know, man, like this is, this is crazy. Cause we had never expected Tiger to get back at that point. And just about six months later, he wins the masters. Tiger wasn't there this year. And I think we all know why. Um, especially when that report came out about how fast he was going at the accident the day before the Masters, which I thought was pretty shitty. And I'd be curious to hear more about that story, if there is anything behind it, or if that's just when they had to release it. I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously freak things happen. It could just be a weird timing thing, but I thought it was really odd that that they decided that was the time to tell people about Tiger going like 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. There was a noticeable difference when Tiger's not there. You know, even when you're watching it on TV, there is something noticeably different. But with all the news that we have with Tiger, especially after getting a bit of closure with the 2019 Masters, which very well will probably be his last major championship, though I'd never be one to doubt Tiger Woods. It probably will be his last major championship. And what I was comforted in was watching the golf this weekend, watching the Masters, following it on social media, Golf's going to be okay without Tiger. You know, I think for a long time, people were like, well, what, what happens after Tiger? Golf, golf's going to die. Who, who's going to watch? You know, people are only watching. We only have these massive numbers because Tiger's there. And I, I don't think that's the case. I really don't. You know, golf is in a really bad place, especially in, you know, you go back to like 2015 to 2018, right? Kind of that gap. And the numbers as terms of viewership was down a lot. The participation numbers as a country, people who were going out and spending money on golf had dropped dramatically. And I don't know if it's top golf. I don't know what it is, but I swear every day on Twitter, it's another 10 people saying like, you know, I'm going to try to get into golf. Now I see a lot of women who are like, you know, I kind of want to get into golf. I want to see what the, what the fuss is about. Why all these guys love going out onto the golf course. Like, what is that about? And I love that for the sport. It's what it needs. And Tiger's a huge part of it. Don't get me wrong. But there is going to be a life after Tiger. And what does that look like? You know, the NFL is going to be fine when Tom Brady retires. But people for a long time weren't sure what golf was going to look like post-Tiger Woods. And I think now that we did get a little bit of that closure with the 2019 Masters, a whole new generation got to see Tiger do his thing. I think it was a really special thing for the sport of golf. And I think it leaves it in a really, really great place. All right, let's turn our attention now to the upcoming NFL draft. And look, we've talked a lot about the draft, and I'm not going to go like, so I have a couple thoughts I'll sprinkle at the end, but this is this is pretty specific. And I want to talk about one prospect in particular. And that's Trey Lance. 
All right. Anyone who's listened to this pod or who I've talked to knows that I am a big fan of Trey Lance. They also probably know that I went to James Madison, which is an FCS school. This is not a me defending the FCS guy thing. This is me explaining why I believe that he could be the best quarterback in this entire group, right? And why to, he is the most intriguing prospect. I don't think that's quite debatable to be totally honest. I mean, maybe Zach Wilson, just because of like some of the upside that people potentially see in him, but the closer we get, the more and more I'm just, I'm loving this kid. I I love his personality. I love his makeup. You know, and keep this in mind, before the 2020 season, right, before COVID, so this is, I think it was, oh, I want to say it was like in March or, or March or February of 2020, so like before COVID really hit in, Daniel Jeremiah, who's one of the premier NFL draft analysts out there, he was an NFL scout for a very, very long time, he worked with the Patriots, he worked with the Eagles, he worked with all over the NFL, the Ravens. Like he's been in some of the top level organizations in all of football before the 2020 season, just after 2019 had ended, Daniel Jeremiah actually had Trey Lance ahead of both Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Now, of course, at that time we were said, Oh, look, they're going to have a whole nother year. We're going to have to figure this out. But that year after it wasn't quite equal for everybody, right? Trey Lance only got one game. Whereas Justin Fields got, I think, I think he got eight by the time the whole season was done. He only had six regular. No, no, I think it was six total because they had two missed games. Yeah, because they only played four regular season games. So six games this year for, for Justin Fields, one for Trey Lance. And obviously uh, Trevor Lawrence played a, a full slate and then ends up losing in the uh, college football playoff to Justin Fields and Ohio State. But the more you watch him play, and this is kind of what Daniel Jeremiah was was alluding to, was there were so many things that he can do. He has every tool you need. He also works with Quincy Avery, who is like the elite of the elite quarterback coaches out there. You know, he works with on the field. You know, Deshaun Watson. He's worked with Russell Wilson. Uh, he's worked with even guys like Teddy Bridgewater. When people thought Teddy Bridgewater's career was done, and all of a sudden he became a pretty solid starter again, Quincy Avery had a lot to do with that. Quincy Avery is his quarterback's coach. He works with him all the time. And Quincy Avery, though he is his client, so of course he's going to hype him up, but he works with quarterbacks all over the NFL. He thinks that Trey Lance might have the the highest upside of anybody in this class. And there's a couple of things that kind of knock him off of that. And, And it's part of it's the inexperience. And another big part of that's the FCS, but he's got all the tools, right? He's got arm strength. I read an article today when he was in high school, he threw the, he threw a touchdown that was in the air for 79 yards in high school. He did that. All right. He has size and athleticism. He's six, four, he's two twenty six. He ran a four five ish, you know, 40 and you're going to say, but Jeff 40 times don't mean anything for quarterbacks. You're right. But the reason I'm noting his speed is because he has on the field speed, like elite level on the field speed. He had 14 rushing touchdowns and ran for 1,100 yards. And yes, it was in the FCS, and this is in the 2019 season. It was absolutely the FCS, and it's a, it is a tier lower of, of the athletes you're talking about here. But he's running away from guys. That tells you he has the athlete, the elite athleticism that you are looking for in a mobile quarterback. But it's the passing, 
right? Like it's his decision-making and his accuracy, right? Zero turnovers. He never threw an interception in college. He had a couple fumbles in the game here in 2020, but he never threw an interception in college. At any level, that is insane. He And on top of it, he's running a complex offense. And you know what the kicker on top of all of that is? He's only 20 years old. He hasn't turned 21 yet. The kid is young. He's five years younger than me. That, that makes me feel really old. And I know that I'm not that old. And that gives you another example of how freaking young the kid is. So if he can be that accurate and make those kinds of decisions as a 20-year-old, as a 19-year-old when he led North Dakota State to a national championship team game, you know, to a national championship, and did along the way beat several really good teams, including a really, really good James Madison team that had several guys on the defensive line and in the secondary who are NFL caliber players, definitely power five caliber players. In fact, Rondell Carter, who was one of the defensive tackles on the Dukes that year, was a UVA transfer from the ACC. Same guy who also played against, you guessed it, Trevor Lawrence. So we can, we can sit here and nitpick the guy and say, oh, well, he only played FCS talent. Like, oh, well, you know, he's only, he's only started 17 games in his career. Justin Fields only started 22. Because when he was playing at Georgia, he only played in, I think, six games. And none of them were as a starting quarterback. So you want to talk about raw? And that's why, again, I'm a little bit more bullish on, you know, I'm bullish on Trey Lance, but I'm also kind of a little bit more down on Justin Fields because Justin Fields has just as little experience as Trey Lance. And don't get me wrong. I would have liked to see Trey Lance play a full season this year. I'd feel a lot more confident in this take. And that's why he is the most intriguing prospect. But the same concerns were had about Carson Wentz. And there is no argument that Carson Wentz is one of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL when he's right. So we can't use the same BS arguments that we used against Carson Wentz against Trey Lance because we've been proven wrong. That when you're six foot four and 230 pounds and you have a rocket for an arm and you're accurate, and you can like some of his accuracy stuff. It's not necessarily like, oh, on a quick slant, like boom, he puts it like right on the money and zips it. Like he can do that. It's not necessarily his strength. It's what they call layering for a quarterback, which is can you throw it over the top of the linebackers, but in front of the safeties on a seam route? Can you find the perfect hole where you're fitting it between a cornerback crashing in from the outside, a safety playing over the top, and a linebacker chasing the tight end up the seam? Those kinds of throws are the most challenging for quarterbacks to make, especially college quarterbacks. It's one of the reasons that people love Tua so much. But Tua's still, you know, barely six feet tall and weighs like 195 to 200 pounds. Trey Lance is six foot four. He's just as good of an athlete as Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields and Justin Fields. So the only knocks we can really hold against them are not a lot of starts, which again, Justin Fields only has five more. So why, and I, I have not heard that argument made very often when people are criticizing Justin Fields, which they should. And he also has played against top tier talent before. The FCS has more FBS caliber players than the average fan realizes. Even someone who I love and respect, Mina Kimes. I think Mina Kimes is one of the best NFL analysts out there. She's referred to the FCS 
and talking about Trey Lance says, oh, he, he was playing against children. That's not, that's not true, Mina. It's just not. And that's coming from someone who watches some college football, but definitely doesn't watch the FCS. I, I've watched those guys work out, and I've watched Power 5 programs work out. It's not that far of a difference. As a whole, yes. But North Dakota State also plays in the Missouri Valley Conference, which is the most competitive and easily the best conference in college football. The CAA is right up there too. But when you're going up against, you know, South Dakota State, South Dakota, you know, you're you're playing really good teams with guys who will go on to play in the NFL. And so I'm not holding that as much against Trey Lance because we've already seen that when a guy has the talent and succeeds at North Dakota State, he can also have the, like, the talent level just because he's playing on that level doesn't necessarily mean that it won't translate. We saw it happen with Carson Wentz. And yeah, Carson Wentz has had some, some head case problems and has had some other stuff, and, and that is all super fair and valid. But I think Trey Lance, as a leader, as a person, to do what he did as a redshirt freshman, taking on the pressure. That's the other thing. It's like everyone thinks like, oh, you go to North Dakota State, you're going to win a championship. That's not the case. Like James Madison proved that it's not the case. And yes, will you have the best chance to because of the guys around you? Of course. But there is so much added pressure to continue what is arguably one of the greatest dynasties in football history, which is Nine was it eight out nine out of the last ten national championships? Eight out of the last nine went to North Dakota State. Think about the pressure that's on a 19-year-old kid. And he comes in and and basically delivers a perfect season. 28 touchdowns, zero interceptions. And here's the other thing. I think some of the Mac Jones stuff, I think it might be to the 49ers. I think that might be a bit of a smoke screen. Because I I in my heart of hearts, believe that Trey Lance is the perfect fit from for Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers. He has upside. He has a pretty high floor. And if you if he comes into camp and you say, oh, you know what, he's not ready, Jimmy G has a no trade clause. So unless you're sending Jimmy G somewhere he wants to go, which is going to limit their options as to where they can trade him, then you start Jimmy G. And Jimmy G already took you to a Super Bowl. So you can be competitive with him. It's not like all of a sudden, like, oh, we're stuck with Jimmy G. It's like, no. If you think Trey Young at 20 years old, and he'll be probably 21 by the time the NFL season rolls around, if you think he's, you know, not ready after camp, then okay, then he's your backup. But he's your future because they know that Jimmy Garoppolo is not their future. It just, it makes too much sense to me. And to make all those trades and to mortgage all of those trade assets, all of those assets to move up to number three, to take Mac Jones? who again has a really, really high floor. And I like Mac Jones, but he doesn't have a particularly high, high ceiling. I think you have to go Trey Lance. I think you have to. He's a better passer than Justin Fields. He has all of the tools. He's as good of an athlete, maybe slightly less good of an athlete, but again, that's not necessarily going to translate. They can use him in the running game. Like how Kyle Shanahan used RG three when he was with Washington Except instead of RG3, who was six foot, six one, and weighed a buck ninety-five, you're gonna have a six foot four, two hundred and thirty-pound quarterback. He's going to be more durable. He's not Cam Newton, but no quarterback will ever be Cam Newton in terms of size and stature. And you're getting a, a really good touch player, finesse player. He played in a complex offense. This is a guy you have to take. 
You absolutely have to. And again, I like Mac Jones and Mac Jones is probably the only quarterback in this draft who played in a more complex offense than Trey Lance did. But Mac Jones also had three years of learning and studying. Trey Lance picked that shit up immediately as a redshirt freshman and went on to win a national championship and beat a lot of really good teams along the way. So that's that's my Trey Lance rant and why I, I really do think he has the highest upside. Now, I wouldn't take him if I'm Jacksonville. You have to take Trevor Lawrence because of the experience, because he's been on the big stage. He can handle the moment. But if Trevor Lawrence going to Jacksonville, like there's no guarantee, especially with Urban Meyer, first-time NFL head coach, there's no guarantee that Trevor Lawrence is going to be amazing and is going to turn that entire franchise around. Trey Lance isn't going to have to turn an entire franchise around if he goes to San Francisco. He can go. He can learn from one of the best quarterback coaches in the league, in the world, in Kyle Shanahan, develop. And even if he sits a year, even if he starts next year, he'll be 21, 22. And that's if he sits an entire year. To me, it's just there's no it doesn't make sense to go any other direction. And he probably won't go to San Francisco. And I I really hope he does. I really hope he does. A couple other NFL draft thoughts here that I've just noticed over the last couple of days. Penny Sewell, I've seen some mocks where they have him dropping to like the Chargers at 13. That makes no sense, like none whatsoever. There's no reason, there's no rationale for Penny Sewell to not be a top seven pick. Even if you're Detroit and Penny Sewell's still there, you take him. You take him. And people are starting to kind of nitpick and say, I don't know, he didn't play last year. You know, does he love football? Watch the video of him on the sidelines when they were playing in the Pac-12 championship just two years ago, when they were playing in the Rose Bowl with Justin Herbert. Watch how fired up that guy got. Rally toweling it up on the sidelines, screaming at his fan base, the Oregon side. Like, that dude loves football. That dude loves punishing people. He's a physical freak. He's already surprisingly polished. And he still has a lot of potential left. Like he still has a lot of tweaks and a lot of things he can do with his footwork, with mechanics, certain things that he will only get better. It makes no sense for him to fall out of the top seven, let alone the top 10 and all the way down to 13. Any team in this draft should take Penny Sewell if he's available. Any team. With the exception of maybe San Francisco because they just signed Trent Williams to that contract. But you, you, can bet your money, bet the house, no shot, he falls down to 13. And if he does, you know, look, I, we've seen crazy stuff happen in the NFL draft, but it would take some serious, like, change of heart pretty quickly for a team to, uh, you know, end up whiffing on him. Uh, a lot of people have Atlanta taking a quarterback at number four or trading down taking quarterback. I don't think they're doing that. I don't think they would have restructured Matt Ryan's deal if they – thought that they were going to go after a quarterback this year. Because, look, maybe if you, you you have Matt Ryan now in a contract for at least three more years, and you can have still three really productive years left with Matt Ryan, especially the way we've seen quarterbacks age in the NFL. Matt Ryan's not someone who's been hurt a lot. You know, he, he doesn't have – it's not about athleticism for him. He's probably the least – outside of Tom Brady, he's probably the least mobile quarterback that we have. Atlanta should take Penny Sewell at number four. You know, or at the very least, take Kyle Pitts and then send out Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones and Kyle Pitts. Good luck defending that. 
seriously. But a quarterback, if they hadn't restructured his deal and they would have been able to get away from him after this year, then maybe. But I would be really surprised if Atlanta took a quarterback. Uh, back to offensive line real quick, too. Rashawn Slater's been getting a lot of love. Some people even have him going ahead of Penny Sewell. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do love Rashawn Slater. And back when we did our first mock draft with Vito and Scotty, I was a big fan. I was a very big fan of Rashawn Slater. I think he's got a lot of potential still. Uh, And look, when you're playing in the Big Ten, I mean, he matched up against guys like Chase Young and not only held his own, like shut down Chase Young for most of that game. So this is a guy who who has gone against top-level pass rushers, you know, Quiddy Pay, Jason uh, Away, right, from Penn State and Michigan. Like, both of those guys are potential first-round picks this year. And he goes up – he went up against them and, again, did a really, really good job. So anyone who takes Rashawn Slater is going to, I think, make a great pick. I think he probably goes in the top 15, maybe in the top – like, I think the perfect spot for him will end up being with the Chargers at 13 because I don't think Penny Sue will be there. But if you're the, you know, the Cowboys, if you're the, even the Giants, you know, or if you're Denver, go take a shot. Like Denver doesn't need any more wide receivers. Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, uh, the kid from Penn State, KJ Hamler they got last year. I mean, they got some weapons there. I have no offense. They don't need another weapon. But Sean Slater could be a difference maker there. Now, if I'm Denver, I, w- I would also look and say, hey, is Micah Parsons still available? Okay, cool. Let's sign him up because Micah Parsons is one of the best defensive prospects we've had in a long time. He's right up there with like the Isaiah Simmons of the world. And if Micah Parsons had played at Alabama or had played at Clemson or Ohio State, I think we'd be talking about it differently. But because he played at Penn State, especially this past year when Penn State just had a really bad season, People don't really know about him in the same way that we know about Isaiah Simmons because we all watched Isaiah Simmons in the national championship game have that ridiculous interception off of Justin Fields in the college football playoff. You know, we all watched him go from being an edge rusher to dropping back into coverage like a safety. So Micah Parsons is going to be a centerpiece of a defense for a long time in the NFL. And if he's there and you're Denver, which already has a really good defense, but linebacker is probably the one spot that they could improve on. Sign him up. Sign him up tomorrow because Micah Parsons is going to be a stud. Uh, And I have one last little thought here, and I'm probably going to do something bigger on it, but just a trend that I've noticed. And I think we're heading in this direction. We've had back-to-back loaded wide receiver classes, like loaded wide receiver classes. And we noticed this with running backs, that teams were were no longer drafting running backs super high, right? They weren't taking them in the, super highly in the first round. Or, you know, they waited and, and took maybe the second or third guy in the third or fourth round because running backs, there were so many that are coming out. You can kind of plug and play them a lot of times right into the NFL. We see a rookie running back, multiple rookie running backs kind of break out every year. And we're starting to see the same thing with wide receivers. And I think more and more, when you have, you know, Kuiper has, I think, 15 wide receivers going in the first two rounds. That's a quarter of the first two rounds being drafted of just, just wide receivers. No, like that is insane. And look, it very well may happen. He even said, you know, there's an argument to me that I could have put 17 within the first two rounds. You can go get another position of need like a Micah Parsons and or a Rashawn Slater or a Penny Sewell and then get Tutu Atwell in the second round. Get Rondale Moore, Elijah Moore. Get one of those guys in the second round. Kadarius Toney 
might even drop to the second round. You can go get some of these guys. Terrence Marshall, right? Some of these guys will hang around and be there, you know, as as time kind of goes on later and later, they will be there. They're guys who will come in and be stud players. You know, last year we talked about how good the Alabama wide receivers were going to be. And then, you know, Jalen Rager gets taken in the first round. And then with the very next pick, the fourth wide receiver taken in the first round, but granted it was at, you know, at 22 when the Vikings were on the board, it was Justin Jefferson. So the fourth wide receiver taken, even though Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs, uh, C.D. Lamb, sorry, he was the fifth wide receiver taken. C.D. Lamb was in that class too. And Jalen Rager all went ahead of him. And yet the fifth guy taken, ended up having the best season and might end up being the best wide receiver out of that whole class. You know, even the DK Metcalfs, right? DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, both of them, neither one of them was a first round pick. So you can get really, really, really high level guys later in the draft. And so I think part of the reasons why those wide receivers fell and why we might see the same thing happen here with Devonta Smith and Jamar Chase, which again, I don't think you should do it with Jamar Chase, maybe Devonta Smith, maybe Jalen Waddle, is I think they're more likely to go, you know, from that like seven, to 18 range rather than, oh, we're going to have three wide receivers taken in the top 10 picks like a lot of us kind of thought even just a few months ago. A couple more things left on the pod today, tonight. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, sorry, if you're listening to this on Thursday, my whole week's been janked up, man. That car situation really, really fucked my my week up. Uh, If you're listening to this on Thursday, this game will have already happened the night before but tonight wednesday the 14th we have the brooklyn nets taking on the philadelphia 76ers and i've been waiting for this matchup not just because i'm a philly guy and i'm excited for the sixers but because i do believe in my heart of hearts these are two of the best three teams in the entire nba arguably the best two and they're at the top of the eastern conference right now both teams have had weird injury stuff happen kd was out for a long time he's come back Scored, didn't miss a shot in his first game back coming off the bench. Put up 31 points yesterday against the Timberwolves, which against the Timberwolves. Timberwolves might be the worst team in all, all basketball right now. But I think we're going to see tonight a little bit of a preview of the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, we're not sure if Kyrie's playing yet. Kyrie missed the game yesterday with the Timberwolves because of personal reasons. Some people believe it's because of the shootings. Uh, that happened in Minnesota, and that's why the Timberwolves and all of the Minnesota sports teams chose not to play on Monday night. And they moved the game to Tuesday. It was in, like an afternoon game, so they had enough time to uh, to fly back to the East Coast. We don't know if Kyrie's playing tonight. I hope he does. I think it, it may, would make for a better game, but if he's kind of doing his thing, then, you know, you got to let him do his thing. That's kind of part of what Kyrie's whole spiel is, and we'll get to that in a second. But – we're seeing a team right now that has most of the pieces. Like the Sixers are fully healthy. So we're going to see a fully healthy Sixers lineup. Embiid, Embiid put up, I think it was like 17 shots. I don't even know if it was that many. I think it was 17. He scored 36 on 17 shots. He was 12 of 13 at the line. I mean, Embiid is on another level. And it's a shame he got hurt because like the the, the MVP conversation would be over. And, and I know what Jokic is doing is remarkable. And how Denver's season ends, you know, especially now with the Jamal Murray injury that happened uh, over the weekend, tearing his ACL, he's done for the year. That sucks. You know, that really sucks for T-Wolves, or sorry, for Denver fans. That sucks for Jokic. But, you know, maybe Jokic kind of puts the team on his back a little more, has to start shooting the ball a little more, less of a distributor. Either way, we're not really sure what Denver's going to look like 
or what Jokic is going to look like for the rest of the season. But Embiid has been so ridiculously good, man. Like, like absurdly good. And we saw Andre Drummond absolutely bully the Nets the other night without LeBron, without AD, and without Kyle Kuzma. And Andre Drummond just absolutely smoked him. So if the Nets can't stop Andre Drummond, who is not a great offensive player, he's a good lob threat, he's good, he's an amazing rebounder, good offensive rebounder, puts it back. He's kind of a more athletic Enos Cantor. If that's what Andre Drummond does to the Brooklyn Nets, then what in the hell is Joel Embiid going to do to him? Because they have no answer. You can't, you can't play DeAndre Jordan. When DeAndre Jordan's on the court, they actually have a, like a negative point differential. That's how bad DeAndre Jordan is for the Brooklyn Nets this year. You can try to play a small ball lineup and put, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge at 36 at 875 years old, however the hell old LaMarcus Aldridge is. You can try to put him up against Embiid. It's not going to work. You can even play Blake Griffin as your small five. It's not going to work. But Jeff Green, you can't play a small ball lineup against Embiid. Now, you can try to outscore the Sixers, no question. But KD, I mean, who who is who is guarding Embiid? Embiid's going to score 50 and 20 rebounds every single game in that series. And I'm, that's why I'm so excited for that. I'm excited to see what Embiid looks like against this Brooklyn Nets team. The other part of this that is interesting is just the Nets feel very unreliable. You know, like you can look at, you know, Kevin Durant. You know, and this is before I get into the, the individual players. The Nets have this feel that the Celtics had the other, like, I think it was two years ago, maybe it was last year. And, and look, I get that the players on the Nets are far more talented than Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. You know, it's a, it's a different level of talent that the Nets have. But there's this idea that they can just flip the switch. And we've never seen a team do that. We've never seen a team in the NBA just flip the switch, turn it on for the playoffs and make a run after having a year of, you know, all sorts of, crazy inconsistent lineups not really knowing what their final five is looking like i mean we're only you know 17 16 games left for most teams in the regular season and we don't know what the best five is for the brooklyn nets we know who it is for the philly for philly right philly they're starting five tobias harris ben simmons joel Embiid, seth curry and danny green they have the best record of any starting five in the nba when those five guys start for the Sixers, they have the best record of any team's starting five in the entire NBA. They're kind of on polar opposites. And for as talented as the Sixers are, they're not as talented as the Brooklyn Nets. No, no chance. And so, yeah, maybe Brooklyn is the first team that can win a championship by just flipping the switch, but we just haven't seen it. And so there has to be a certain level of skepticism when we're talking about the Brooklyn Nets and their chances to go on and win a title. KD is all over the place. The health is a major concern, right? You know, he missed a huge chunk of time because of this hamstring injury. We're talking about a guy who's seven feet tall, right? So his hamstring is like two and a half feet in and of itself. It takes one tweak, one tweak in the playoffs, and KD could miss a month. He could miss an entire series. Or he's playing injured, in which case we saw what happened the last time he played injured. He tore his Achilles, and he's still coming back from that Achilles, and a lot of times when people have an injury like that, they're overcompensating so much with the other leg that the other one eventually goes. Same thing with ACLs and MCLs. It's just kind of a nature of rehabbing. Now, I'm sure KD absolutely took care of himself, and that, that's part of this, why he missed so much time, is because they're being 
extremely cautious with Kevin Durant. But it's not just the physical stuff with him. Because when he's on the court, he's the best scorer I've ever seen in my life. He just is. To do what he does at at his height and size and length, it's stupid. But it's the -the off-the-court stuff recently that I'm like, what are you doing, KD? Like, the whole DM thing with Michael Rappaport. Like, I don't like Michael Rappaport. The guy is weird. You know, I'm not like some hardcore stoolie, but, like, the way he acted in the whole him versus Barstool thing was, like, really weird to me. And his... Talk about a guy who you was a character on Friends, like was a mainstay character on Friends for like at least four or five episodes when he was dating Phoebe to now he's getting just like ripped by Kevin Durant online. And, you know, I don't care if if it's justified or not. Like KD, like the hell are you doing, dude? Like you went way too in on him. And like, I, I get it. People think it's funny or whatever, especially if you don't like Rappaport, but if any other player does that, like I don't know. Like it's just a really, it's a really weird look for him. And he has at times embraced the idea of being a villain, but he also left Golden State because everyone just thought he was a villain. So, like, what are you just an internet troll? Like you're like one of the best basketball players in the world, and just in your spare time, you're an internet troll. Like I, it just it doesn't make sense to me. Like why why are you doing that? You you don't have to be that guy. You can just go about your business. And now he's like confident about it. Whereas he was embarrassed about his burner before he's like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to rip people and call them, you know, horrible names that I, I'm not going to repeat on the pod. Like he went in to a point where I'm like, okay, like, what are you getting out of this? Like, does, does that make you feel better? Katie, does it, does it make you feel better? Cause you just ripped this guy a new one. Like, dude, you're worth like $300 million. Like, what are you doing? Like, you don't need to be doing that. But if that's what helps him sleep at night, I guess, I don't know. So all that stuff with KD is a question mark. Kyrie is so ridiculously talented. Like, he's so freaking good at basketball. It's insane. His handle is the best I've ever seen. His ability to finish is up there with Allen Iverson as one of the two greatest finishers at that size I've ever seen. And and frankly, just in NBA history. But these, these pauses, and again, like, especially when it's about stuff like black lives matter. And when it, when it comes for very specific reasons, because he does like to be socially active and I commend him on that, but he just has like weeks where he's just like, hey, I'm just not playing this week. And it's not like faking an injury. It's just like, Oh no, I'm just not playing. And so it's like, okay. Like I, I understand your reasoning, but when we get to the playoffs, like, are you going to deliver? And I think Kyrie is someone who probably will, but you know, what happens if he has one of those kind of streaks in the middle of a playoff series? And he's just like, no, I just got to go home. Can't be here. I, I don't, I, again, I don't think that's going to happen. But it's just a question mark, right? It's just something you have to keep in mind. There's so many question marks about this team. And the third one, James Harden, right? James Harden's known for his stability. He's known for his durability. He's, he's known for not getting hurt and being able to, you know, take contact better than anybody. Like initiate contact, but make it look like he's taking contact and still finish. When James Harden was playing, he looked to be like the best player in the NBA, honestly, before he got hurt. But now we're seeing James Harden get hurt, which is not something we've really seen before. So what kind of shape is he going to come in when he comes back, you know, two weeks before the playoff starts? And he might come back sooner than that. But look, we're, we're only like a month away. So what is he going to look like? What kind of shape is he going to be in? Is he going to be full on James Harden? Are they going to be extra cautious with him like they were with KD? hold him out a little bit longer, and then again, expect just to flip the switch in the playoffs. In which case, again, the Nets 
Like if I had, if you're telling me right now, who is the favorite to win the title? I'm telling you it's the Nets, but there's a lot of question marks about this team. And the thing with Philly, and I tweeted this out earlier in the year, like game number four or five was there was just something like this, this Sixers team feels like a championship team. They feel special. They feel unique. It's the same feel. And like anyone who's a fan, regard if you if you're a fan of a pro team and your team won the championship that year, you know what I'm talking about. For me, I think back to the 2017, 2018 Eagles. Like there was something about that team that was special. And I think there is something about this team that is special. And whether it's Embiid, Simmons, like they can match up. They're one of the best defensive teams in the entire year. I already said their starting five has the best record of any starting five in the NBA. The other thing, which again, I've mentioned before is that they're built for the playoffs. The Sixers are a team that is built to win in the postseason. So when the game slows down and all of a sudden, you know, James Harden has to set up a possession and he's going to do his James Harden thing. Well, even though he has not really been super successful in the postseason. Or KD, because KD's not really handling the ball much for them. You know, Harden's the point guard. KD's kind of playing off a little bit and still brings up the ball a little bit. They're not going to be able to just run in transition. And even still, the Sixers have ridiculous athletes. Thibel, Ben Simmons. You know, how Tobias Harris is such an underrated defender. At the very least, he's a six eight body that you can put on James Harden. At least he's got size and length on James Harden. And yeah, he's probably not going to be able to stay in front of him, but you're never going to shut down James Harden. If you can slow him down a little bit, you can make him work for it. So I, I don't know what this looks like for the Sixers, but if the Sixers are fully healthy, I kind of think that they might have the advantage here over the Nets. But if the Nets are all there and healthy and clicking and they're able to flip on the switch, then no, I, I don't think the Nets will lose. I, I do think the Nets would be the favorites to win the title. But people started sleeping on the Sixers a little bit when Embiid got hurt, and I think tonight we might have a good idea as to what these two teams will look like when they play. And, and yeah, again, Harden probably is not playing. Kyrie, we still don't know, at least at this time. But if both, if, all, if two of them play at least versus a healthy Sixers and the Sixers win by like 10, that's going to be telling. And if the offense is just too much even for the Sixers to handle and Embiid drops 40 and 15 and they lose – that will also be very telling. But again, this is the regular season, and we won't know till playoff time. All right, last thoughts here as we wrap up a pod here on a rainy Wednesday. Uh, tomorrow, April 15th, is Jackie Robinson Day. And I was watching the ESPN baseball broadcast last night. It was the Mets and the Phillies. And they don't, they don't have a game tomorrow scheduled to air. Uh, so they were celebrating Jackie Robinson on Tuesday night. And, you know, it's funny. Growing up, I I love Jackie Robinson. I probably did three or four different, like, projects in school about Jackie Robinson. The first interview I ever did in my life was interviewing my grandfather about what it was like when Jackie Robinson came to Philly, Philadelphia. What it was like watching him in the stands. Jackie Robinson is such an incredible figure in our culture. You know, we, we say it all the time, how sports obsessed we are. You know, we were sports obsessed about baseball more than anything else. Now it's kind of like all sports with football and a little bit of basketball. But, you know, we, we really do love all sports. Back then, you know, we as a society in, in America and American sports was baseball. It's America's pastime. 
just like soccer is in the rest of the world. You know, that's how obsessed we were with baseball. And Jackie Robinson doing what he did, breaking the color barrier. It's crazy that it almost feels like, like we don't talk about it enough because every single historic figure in sports, especially a person of color, and, and that's not just black, like that is Latino, you know, that is the Asian players who come over from Japan and Korea. All of those guys only get the chance to do that now because of Jackie Robinson. And, you know, it's been a really tough week for a lot of people. Uh, it should be a really hard week for everybody in this country. The sad truth is that it's not a hard week for everybody. And we need to understand, like, and it's, it's morbidly fitting that Jackie Robinson Day falls on this week. And I, look, I'm no expert on this, and, and I'm not going to sit here and try to preach to everybody about we, you know, we, we need to be better. Like, we do need to be better. Like, it's, it's just a fact. In, in every facet of our society, we need to be better about this. And while there will be protests going on and, and there will be sports sport games and matchups that don't get played, we need to use the way that we revere people like Jackie Robinson as an example as to like, why, like, why are we so fucked up in this country? Like, why are we so twisted? Why do people view stuff like Black Lives Matter as controversial? This isn't controversial, but it's become that way. And I'm going to be thinking a lot about Jackie Robinson this week, as well as I'm going to be thinking about the families and the people of the shootings in, there was one in Maryland just yesterday, last night. You know, there's one in Minnesota, there's one in New York. And this just all in the last three days, the video in, in the state of Virginia that I live in, there's a video of a military officer getting pepper sprayed in his own car. We live in a, a twisted world. And I don't know what's going to get through to people. And I don't know if, if things will or not, but things have to change in this country. They just, they have to. We're going down a road and Greg Popovich said this the other night and I thought it was pretty profound. He said, you know, we are going to be Rome. We're going to be one of the greatest civilizations that the world history has ever seen. And we're going to fall because of how divided and split and hurt and fucked up our country is. And, we don't respect each other. We don't love each other the way that we should. And we need to be better at it. We have to. You know, we need to learn. People who are ignorant to the whole thing. You know, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I, I forced myself because it's, it's just the morally correct thing to do to educate myself as much as I could. And it's not anyone's responsibility to do that other than your own. And I really do, I really do hope that maybe with all of this pain and everything that half of our country is feeling this week, that Jackie Robinson Day comes up tomorrow and we remember how amazing it is what he did. The shit he had to go through, getting spit on, getting called the most horrific names, having fake versions of him lynched in the rafters as he's playing baseball, playing a game just because he's black. It's a part of our history. And these people are, are brave and, and he was brave and he powered through it. 
and he opens so many doors and we need to take the spirit of that and continue it today. My heart goes out to everybody who is hurting this week. And I know I'm a white straight man in this country and nothing I say can ever, I'll never be able to understand what it feels like. And we need to do a better job. We have to. And I will think back to the stories I've heard and, and the reading and research I did about Jackie Robinson and everything he had to go through to get to the point that he did. And it will hit a little more home this week than it has before. That's all I got. Sorry to end the show on a little bit more of a sad note, but you know what? It's an important topic and you have to be okay about talking about it. Again, it's the only way that things will hopefully inevitably change. Uh, I will hopefully be back for one more podcast this week. Again, a lot of craziness going on. I am getting my first vaccine shot on Friday. So hopefully tomorrow night, I will have a podcast out ready for Friday morning. And I'll talk to you guys then. Take it easy.